0: The central character in Ursula K. Le Guin's second novel in the Earthsea series, The Tombs of Atuan, is Tenar or Arha. We'll talk about why she has two names like that in just a moment, who we see as a young child. And through the course of the novel, we see move into young womanhood. And the most important feature of her life is that early on, she is recognized. recognized as the new upcoming priestess of the nameless ones in the tombs of otawan now why is that the case well this has to do with the religion of the kargish people as we're going to see who believe in reincarnation and she is believed to be the reincarnated priestess who died at the same time as she's born and there's there's a bit more to it as we'll go into but the idea is that there's a long line of priestesses Tracing all the way back, the same being, essentially, the same soul has existed in numerous bodies. And this one is just the latest. The book actually begins with a prologue. And it begins with these words, come home, tenor. come home. And she's a young child. Her mother is calling her home. The father says, why do you let your heart hang on the child? They're coming to take her away next month for good. Might as well bury her and be done." with it. What's the good to clinging to one? You're bound to lose. She's no good to us. If they'd pay for her when they took her, which would be something, but they won't, they'll take her. And that's an end of it. And he says a little bit later, she isn't ours. She never was since they came here and said, she must be a priestess of the tombs. Why can't you see that? And that is exactly what they do. The first chapter begins, the Eaten One, by this ritual that is taking place. It's described in great detail by Le Guin. The child climbs up four of the seven steps of marble. A figure in belted gown of white wool steps suddenly out of the shadows and strode down the steps to the child. His face was masked with white. He held a sword of polished steel five feet long without word or hesitation. He swung the sword up over the girl's neck as the blade swung to its highest point and poised. A figure in black darted out from the left side of the throne, leapt down the stairs, stayed the sacrificer's arms with slender arms. The sharp edge of the sword glittered in midair so they balanced for a moment. And then there's a chant. Oh, let the nameless ones behold the girl given to them who is verily the one born ever nameless. Let them accept her life and the years of her life until her death, which is also theirs. Let them find her acceptable. Let her be eaten. Other voices shrill and harsh as trumpets replied she is eaten she is eaten now this is a, a really central idea she's not the only person who is eaten by the nameless ones we find that prisoners are also as they die under the tombs of atuan eaten by the nameless ones as well but this is a person whose identity consists in having her identity gone reduced eaten taken away. Why? So that she can be the vessel, not just for these old powers of the earth, the nameless ones, but also for the priestess who has been there this entire time through a multiplicity of bodies, the previous Arha she's called later on. And so there's this entire ritual. I'll just read a little bit more of this. The little girl was taken from room to room, from temple to temple. In one place, salt was placed on her tongue. In another, she she knelt facing west while her hair was cut short and washed with oil and scented vinegar. In another, she lay face down on a slab of black marble behind an altar while shrill voices sang a lament for the dead. Neither she nor any of the priestesses ate food or drank water that day. As the evening star set, the little girl was put to bed naked between sheepskin rugs in a room she'd never slept in before. It was in a house that had been locked for years, unlocked only that day. The room was higher than it was long and had no windows. There was a dead smell in it, still and stale. The silent women left her there in the dark. And the person who does come to her is this Enoch, who, the Manan, who is going to be taking care of her until he, he dies in the, in the story. And he calls her by her name, Tenar, but now it's time for that name to be lost. It's been eaten. It goes away. And for much of the novel, she is now Ara, the eaten one. And She learns from one of the other priestesses, Thar, the priestess of the brother gods, the twin gods, the why, the explanation for her being chosen. And she's actually memorized this as Le Guin tells us. She tells Manan, tell me how I was chosen. Thar had told her till she knew the words by heart. At the death of the one priestess of the tombs of Atawan, ceremonies of burial and purification are completed within one month by the moon's calendar. After this, certain of the priestesses and wardens of the place of the tombs go forth asking and seeking. They seek a girl child who was born on the night of the priestess's death. When they find a child, they wait and watch. It must be sound Of body and mind, it must not suffer from rickets nor the smallpox or any deformity. If it reaches the age of five years unblemished, then it is known that the body of the child is indeed the new body of the priestess who died and the child is made known to the God King and Awabath, and brought here to her temple and instructed for a year. Then she is taken to the hall of the throne and her name is given back to those who are, her, who are her masters, the nameless ones. She is the nameless one, the priestess ever reborn. And it says, this is all word for word as Thar had told her and she never did to ask for a word more. So what we've got here is an explanation of this is how the priestess is reincarnated. This is why we brought you in and then she wants to know a deeper and broader how from Manan and he can tell her Tell me how I was chosen. And he would tell her again. And he tells a whole story there that gives a lot more detail about the poverty of the family and looking at the baby, thinking they'd found the reborn one at last. The mother could tell this too. She held the baby and never said a word. The mother actually engages in a trick. She stains the baby's skin with berry juice and says that she has a fever, which would disqualify her apparently from being able to be the newborn body of the priestess and they wash that off. She never finds out what happens with her mother. She asks, what did the mother do when they came to take the child away? Manon didn't know he had not gone with the priestesses on that journey. So we have a narrative of, here's how you got here. And she lives a life that is genuinely set apart. As we find out in that same chapter, she lives with the other girls for a year and then she moves to her own little house as opposed to the great house, which is just for the priestess where she would live her entire life, and then die, and then be reborn again, brought there again. So there's this cyclical thing that's taking place. We also find out that she cannot be punished by the other priestesses, as unfortunately her friend Pentha is, who Arha gets her in trouble, right? And Pentha bears the brunt of the punishment for Arha, not in place of her, but she's the one who gets whipped scourged right now there's more to this life set apart a really important part of this is getting to learn the things that are underneath the tombs the under tombs the the great chamber the labyrinth and its particular places and this is something that she has to be taught by the other priestesses who have learned from the previous Arha, right? So in chapter three, Kossel says, I have been permitted to look after certain matters pertaining to the domain of the nameless ones until now. If you so desire, it is now time for you to learn and see and take charge of these matters, which you have not yet remembered in this life. So what do they do? They go under the ground, and Castle starts showing her these places. I'm going to read a little bit more of this. So she says, At last I shall see my own domain. At last she was 15. It was over a year since she'd made her crossing into womanhood. And at the same time had come into her full powers as the one priestess of the tombs of Atuan, highest of all high priestesses of Cargoth lands, one whom not even the god king himself might command. They all bowed the knee to her now. Even Grim Thar and Kossel all spoke to her with elaborate deference. But nothing had really changed. Nothing happened. Once the ceremonies of her consecration were over, the days went on as they'd always gone. There was wool to be spun, black cloth to be woven, meal to be ground, rites to be performed. The nine chants must be sung nightly. The doorways blessed, the stones fed with goat's blood twice a year. The dances of the dark of the moon danced before the empty throne. And the whole year had passed just as the years before it had passed and were all the years of her life to pass so. So getting to explore the underground is going to restore some interest to her life, and this is something that she gets to do. She also is involved in determining the deaths of the prisoners who have been sent to her who die underneath in the realm of the Nameless Ones, who are eaten by the Nameless Ones as a result. And so she deals with the three prisoners that now Kossel is is bringing as a problem before her. She also gets to decide what to do with Ged when he is caught within the underground and becomes, as she's going to make him for a brief period, a slave of the tomb. So that's an important function. She has her own rituals that she is herself carrying on, right? And we get a brief description of them engaging in some things that, that tie in with the old function of the priestess, breathing in fumes, and then dancing before the throne. Here we go. The demands of the endless ritual of the place brought Arha out of her privacy a couple days later. Twin kids had been born out of season to a she-goat and were to be sacrificed to the twin god-brothers, as the custom was, an important rite at which the first priestess must be present. Then it was dark of the moon, and the ceremonies of the darkness must be performed before Before the empty throne, Arha breathed in the drugging fumes of herbs burning in broad trays of bronze before the throne and danced solitary in black. She danced for the unseen spirits of the dead and the unborn, and as she danced, the spirits crowded the air around her, following the turn and spin of her feet and the slow, sure gestures of her arms. She sang the songs whose words no man understood, which she had learned syllable by syllable long ago from Thar. A choir of priests. Priestesses hidden in the dusk behind the great double row of columns echoed the strange words after her and the air in the vast ruinous room hummed with voices as if the crowding spirits repeated the chants again and again. So there are rituals that she is carrying on and they're different from the rituals of the others, which she talks about in kind of. Well, at least Le Guin places in her mind in kind of a a denigrating way. Here's the, the passage. Never had the rights and duties of the day seemed so many or so petty or so long. The little girls with their pale faces and furtive ways, the restless novices, the priestesses whose looks were stern and cool, but whose lives were all a secret tangle of jealousies and miseries and small ambitions and wasted passions. All these women among whom she'd always lived and who made up the human world to her now appeared to her as both pitiable and boring. So that's the status of everybody else, perhaps with the exception of the two other high priestesses, right? So the lives of others are filled with ritual, but they're also kind of tawdry. Le Guin goes on, but she who served great power, she the priestess of grim night was free of that pettiness. She did not have to care about the grinding meanness of their common life. The days whose one delight was likely to be getting a bigger slop of lamb fat over your lentils than your neighbor got. She was free of the days altogether. Underground, there were no days. There were, was always and only night. Now this is when she's already involved with Ged as her prisoner. We also learn in the story about the origins of the priestess of the Nameless Ones, and this ties in with an older time in the Kargish Isles. This is Manan telling the story in chapter three. Long ago, he said, you know, little one, before our four lands joined together into an empire, before there was a god king over us all, there were a lot of lesser kings, princes, chiefs. They were always quarreling with each other, and they'd come here to settle their quarrels. That was how it was. They'd come from our land, Atuan, and from Karagoat and Atnini, and even from Herat-Her, all the chiefs and princes with their servants and their armies, and they'd ask you what to do. They'd ask you how to do things, and you'd go before the empty throne and give them the counsel of the nameless ones. So at one time the priestess had an oracular or divinatory function for all of the nobility of the Kargish lands. That has changed in recent times as the god kings have arrogated to themselves greater and greater power. But This ancient time is one in which there's a priestess who's serving the nameless ones and it's believed to be the same priestess coming to birth over and over and over again, providing a kind of continuity and connection to the older Kargish past. There's a very interesting set of passages where we find that there's a weirdness She's learning about the tombs and the labyrinth. She says, when was the labyrinth made? And asked Thar, and the, the stern, thin priestess answered, mistress, I do not know, no one knows. Why was it made? For the hiding away the treasures of the tombs and the punishment of those who tried to steal those treasures. And she asks him about what's in the labyrinth. And they say, a far greater and more ancient treasure, would you look on it? Yes, none but you, the special priestess, may enter the treasury of the tombs. You." May May take your servants into the labyrinth, but not into the treasury. If even Manan entered in there, the anger of the dark would waken. He would not leave the labyrinth alive. There you must go forever. I know where the great treasure is. You told me the way 15 years ago before you died so that I would remember and tell you when I returned, I can tell you the way to follow in the labyrinth beyond the painted room. And the key to the treasury is that silver one on your ring with the figure of a dragon on the half, but you must go alone. So what we have going on here is the entire under tomb the labyrinth, these treasures, all of these things. They are the province of this priestess and the other two priestesses, Thar and Kassel, the other high priestesses, have helped out. They took in information from the previous Arha and now they're teaching or reteaching Arha what she already knew and did and said in the previous flesh. You can't even say the previous life because she's still living out the same life. And there's a kind of interesting thing here. She says, after all, had she not seen these treasures before, she can wait for it, right? And Le Guin says, it still made her feel strange when Thar and Castle spoke to her of things she'd seen or said before she died. She knew indeed she had died and been reborn in a new body at the hour of her old body's death, not only once 15 years ago, but 50 years ago, and before that, and before that, back down the years and hundreds of years, generation before generation, to the very beginning of years when the labyrinth was dug and the stones were erased and the first priestess of the nameless ones lived in this place and danced before the empty throne. They were all one, all those lives and hers. She was the first priestess. All human beings were forever reborn, but only she, Arha, was reborn forever as herself. A hundred times she had learned the ways and turnings of the labyrinth and come to the hidden room at last. Now, here's a, a great thing to end on. Yet it was always strange when Thar said, You told me before you died. So... On the one hand, Arha is able to accept this story about her own meaning, her own origins, her very identity. On the other hand, she feels it still as weird, as strange, and she's living this life where she is definitely set apart as something, as someone very special. But it's also a life of, you might say, deep loneliness and, for at least some parts, boredom as well, and not fully knowing her own identity, as we're going to see later on in the novel as it proceeds. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible.